Well, last time we were dealing with common grace, and this week we're going to move it a bit further across a very important line that's important to you and important to God. Well, it is compass night, and we need charts, and you have one. This one's simple, though, a very simple chart. But it's important for us to lay this out, and and while some of it will raise some questions, I'm assuming in your mind, depending on your level of background and knowledge, we're going to get to a lot of those questions, I can assure you, perhaps not all of them, but many of them that I know would be surfaced in my mind if I were you, Uh, and we're going to get to those, if not by the end of tonight, certainly uh, through the rest of this study. So be patient as we work through this in a very summary fashion, at least on number one, Uh, and understand even as I've set this up with a few words I've said about it, is we're going from the conviction, the restraint... Uh, the kindness, the blessing of God in common grace to crossing that line where God has uh, promised to, and I trust he's done it in your life, pulled you into real reconciliation with your creator. And that act is obviously an act of God, and the spirit of God is instrumental in that. So we're going to try to work on that aspect of it, uh, perhaps with one exception on this chart, but we'll figure that all out. So let's work on this chart. Let's fill it in, and let's talk about taking some words that surround this act of regeneration and, and conversion and the actions of the Spirit and make some distinctions in our chart. Okay, So letter A, we'll work uh, row by row like you were reading through this chart, and we'll start with letter A in terms of the phrase. The phrase I want to start with is the one I just used, and that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Here's a phrase in the Bible, compound word, very important word, one that I think we need to uh, understand the distinction from all the other words that we're going to look at on this chart. The meaning, if we're going to just talk about the word itself, it's the word again and the uh, origin of life uh, in in Greek, and and we would say that a new life or life again, uh, again life, and we'll just say it this way, the meaning of this word in, in, in a very summary fashion is new life that is produced by the Spirit. Uh, A lot more to that, and we'll look at that tonight. If you want a parallel to that, where the word is not used as it's found in places like the one we're going to look at in a second here in Titus, uh, you can find in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, when he uses the phrase repeatedly, you have to be born again, it's the same idea. Different use of words, different combination, but that's that's the idea. Something has to be redone in your life. There has to be a new start, a fresh start, new life. We'll look at that Uh, with some detail tonight. The key text that I want to think through here is Titus 3, 4 through 6. So once you jot that down, I'd like you to turn to that passage, and let's spend a little bit of time uh, in this. We'll spend more time in it later, but let's at least read it together and give ourselves some contextual definitions so that we can make some comparisons and contrast a few things in a minute. Titus chapter 3, Titus is a pastoral epistle, of course, which means that Paul is writing pastors, two pastors that he writes in the New Testament, Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, and Titus, who's a pastor on the island of Crete. There's three pastoral epistles because he wrote Timothy twice. He's talking here about one of the core doctrines of the merciful and gracious unmerited salvation that we gain in Christ, and he states it this way beginning in verse 4. But when the goodness And the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, of God our Savior rather appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, acting on his own accord, completely unbound by any actions on our part, by the washing of, now he uses two words, synonyms, regeneration, there's the word, and renewal, here's the instrumentality of it, it's by or of the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out on us richly through the work, obviously, the ministry of, the sacrifice of, Jesus Christ our Savior. So we get saved, and it's done through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit by something he describes as regeneration, new birth, life again, the derivation of of living life in ourselves, as we'll see here in a minute, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can see in this text that the next box timing should be easy for us to understand. We're talking about not being saved, and then we're talking about being saved. I'm going to ask, you know, how does this work? When does this happen? Well, it only happens once because we step into this relationship with God or we're dragged into it, perhaps is a more theologically accurate way to say it, by the Holy Spirit, and it happens one time. And we'll use this word just as a summary word at the point of conversion. There was a day you were not a Christian. There was a day then you became a Christian. And that day, that moment, that that millisecond when the thing in your life is now redefined from heaven's perspective, and by that I mean your file, as I often say, your status before God, that act of regeneration was a one-time act. It's what we talk about in terms of this text as saving you, uh, as being saved. It happens one time at conversion. The effect of it, obviously, uh, it's perhaps redundant, but let's use this phrase because it is spoken of in this this way elsewhere without ever using the word regeneration, new birth, or born again. We are made new. That's why it's funny to listen, by the way, to non-Christians who talk about, you know, are you a born-again? They have their own cultural definitions for that. You're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? There's no other kind, right? You understand that. Uh, If you're going to be a Christian, you have to be born-again. That's the whole point of the most famous text in all of the Scripture, John 3.16. The whole point of that text, the context of that text, is Jesus saying you can't go to heaven, you can't be a child of God, you can't be related to Christ unless you are regenerate, you are born again. That's what we're talking about. There's a baseline word, and it's helpful for us. Here's one that we looked at in the symbols and signs lecture, which I think was week two or three, but it'll be an important distinction for us, and that is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. There's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and there's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I, uh, I, I thought it was helpful for you in that series to throw up pictures. It was you know, more visual than most of my PowerPoints because I wanted you to see something of what was supposed to be envisioned in the minds of the people who heard these phrases initially. And certainly seal, I don't know, you can think of a lot of things, but when you think of a seal in the first century and the sealing of something, uh, hopefully we got the idea in your mind by the picture on the screen that this is some kind of official mark. Let's put it that way. The meaning of this is being officially marked, officially designated by the Holy Spirit. And I gave you that, you know, wax seal or whatever it was with some ancient papyrus up there. And the idea of this is an official seal coming from someone important. And that document now is not an ordinary document. It's a document that is set apart because it has this seal on it. The sealing of the Holy Spirit repeated throughout the New Testament. Key text for this. Don't need to turn there if you don't want to. Well, we should turn there. Let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. I think when we studied this in the signs series, we looked at uh, Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. Um, we looked at that text. We look at 2 Corinthians 1, 
verses 17 through 22, when Paul said, or yeah, 2 Corinthians 1, when he said, you know, am I equivocating? I said I was going to come to you. The plans changed. I didn't come to you. Do you think I'm equivocating in my plans, making worldly plans, saying yes, and really in my heart saying no? Was it yes and no? No, it wasn't. It was yes. And, and I was planning on it. I was sincere. Because, you know, when God makes a promise, remember this logic in the passage, 2 Corinthians 1, when he says yes, it's yes. And, and everything he purposes to do, he does. And in that context, then he drops some doctrine, some pneumatology on them and says, you know, that's how it is when we get saved. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. That sealing is the promise of God, the guarantee of the promise of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit was promised to come to you. Then this relationship with him, it is a quote unquote sealing who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Your changed relationship with the Spirit now becomes a guarantee of our inheritance. What's that? When we get to the place when we live with God in unmitigated blessing because there's no sin referenced in our relationship, there's no condemnation, we don't have the flesh or the fallen world, we get that inheritance and it is the guarantee of it until we acquire possession of it and we'll be grateful for it because it's all based on mercy as we looked at in Titus and so we'll praise him for that and we'll give him glory for that. Timing of this, I hope you can see in Ephesians 1, is when we heard the word of truth and we responded with faith at that moment, that one time, once only at conversion reality, that was the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which means that I had a new relationship with the Spirit of God that was considered the sealing of God, which guaranteed for me uh, my future. Put it that way on our chart here, the effect of it is we are guaranteed a new destiny. I'm going to heaven for sure. I'm not the works-based religionist who wants to say, I'm trying, I hope I'll go to heaven when I die. Like most non-Christians I share the gospel with, you know, I hope so, I'm trying to go to heaven. You know, is, all that nonsense is, is you know, it's, I guess it's not nonsense. It's, it's preparatory work in the hearts of non-Christians who look at deity as something uh, or someone they can never know whether they're in right standing with them because they're always relying on their own resume. We're so grateful because Christ has done for us what is required by the Father, and we can say the Spirit of God and His presence in our lives is our guarantee that we're going there. And the thief on the cross could say that 10 seconds after his conversion, and you can say that 10 years after your conversion, and we should have no doubt as to where we're going. Sealing of the Spirit. All right, letter C. Let's talk about this one, the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, we've touched on this, but this will become important in this sermon tonight, this lecture tonight, the indwelling of the Spirit. Now, that one's not hard to figure out in any language, but let's use some words I think that may be helpful. Something about, uh, and I like to use this word in my preaching and explanation and counseling, there is a sense in which there is an invasion. There is a, 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 um, an attack. There is a, there is a surrender on your part, and there is a domination on the Spirit's part to take over, to invade your life, and then take up residence there. Why one of my favorite evangelistic passages is Luke 14, because there's the picture of the army coming against you, and if you want peace, and you don't want to fight, and you don't want to lose that fight with the overpowering army, then you've got to ask for terms of peace. And the only terms for peace are, you let the Spirit of God, to use our pneumatological matrix here tonight in our focus, and say, I surrender. And the Spirit then becomes the dominant factor in my life. He takes up residence in my life, and indwelling. One time and at the point of conversion. Uh, key text. Oh, we'll get to one time. We haven't got to timing yet. Uh, John chapter 14. 
verses 16 and 17, and I'll read this one for you because we've looked at this, I think, a couple times already. Verses 16 and 17, Jesus is there, upper room discourse, talking about the Spirit. He says, I'm going to ask the Father. He'll give you another, the parakletos, the helper. He'll be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. That's who he's called. And the world can't receive him because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And the distinction between with and in was the distinction we looked at last time when we were talking, or two times ago, when we were talking about the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's a change in the New Covenant arrangement. And the picture of New Testament Christians now was an indwelling reality and not just an external conformity, influence, conviction, whatever you'd like to call it. We called it many things on that sermon. Only once, one time, at the point of conversion. You should jot down in your notes somewhere, perhaps in that box, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Because the definition in Paul's writings and in many places throughout the New Testament is if you don't have the indwelling spirit, then you're not a Christian. Let me read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you don't belong to Christ unless you have the spirit of Christ, which is a shorthand way to emphasize and highlight identity with Christ, but really we're speaking of the same person here. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. If you don't have the indwelling Spirit of Christ, you're not a Christian. So therefore, that's the definition in the normal, we'll get to that, the normal rules of New Testament conversion. You've got to have the Spirit indwelling your life. That's the definition of Christianity. The effect of that is, of course, on the timeline of our lives as we gain a new internal presence. Something, some, not something, someone now is living within my life. And I know that's a spatial analogy. We're going to touch on that some more a little bit later. It's that, and spend a whole week on that, uh, just dealing with the presence of the Spirit in our lives and that relationship. But that internal presence is what we gain, which you did not have prior to becoming a Christian. You may have had the conviction of the Spirit externally, but you didn't have the internal presence of the Spirit. D, let's go down to the next line here. The phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. More confusing still for people and more grounds for confusion on this point. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've ever been to a baptism service here, we always define the word, so you should know what the word means. Uh, before I give you a you know, summarized dictionary definition, the word baptizo, as you remember, is a transliterated word. I say this a lot, but you know, I ask a lot of non-Christians that don't go to Compass Bible Church, and they don't understand this. So I'm, if I'm boring you with this, I'm fine with that. Baptizo, like apostle, like a lot of proper nouns in the Bible, are transliterated. They're not translated. If we were to translate baptizo instead of transliterating it and simply saying baptize, we would have to pick a word that gives some depiction of what baptizo means. Baptizo doesn't mean anything if you don't speak Greek. And if you speak English and someone just uses a Greek word and kind of, you know, anglicizes that for us as English speakers and says baptizo or apostle, there's another one, we don't really know what that means unless you do a little homework and find out what apostle means. Apostle, if you translate it, which sometimes the New Testament does, thankfully, it means what? Sunday school graduates, what? Sent, right? Sent one, right? Apostolo is to send, sent one. Baptizo, unfortunately, is never translated in the New Testament. It's always transliterated. Apostle, on the other hand, sometimes transliterated, sometimes translated. Baptizo is always transliterated. So to understand that, you've got to have a teacher or someone who knows the language, or you've got to do some homework and have a reference tool to define the word for you. 
And the word baptizo, though some would like to debate this, and they're wrong, by the way, that it means to, Sunday school graduates, to dunk, right? To submerge, to put into. It's a, it's a spatial word. It's a verb that speaks of being moved from here to there and being put into something. Let's, let's give our definition here in this box. Let's call it this. It's a change in placement, which has no object. Notice it has no object. It has agency in this definition. It has no object. A change in placement by means of the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to change your placement, which just like a lot of things in the Bible, that's a spatial analogy, like indwelling, a spatial analogy, which is not the point. Spirit doesn't take up any space. And you didn't move when you got saved. You stayed right where you were at. But you got placed somewhere else because we're talking about the baptism of the Spirit. Which, by the way, at a baptism, I always ask the question, does baptism save you? And you're supposed to say, which one? Now, in the Bible, the one that's important, the one they talk about, the one baptism that we have is not water baptism. The baptism that's important is the baptism that does save us. And that's the baptism by the Holy Spirit, not the baptism by Paul. And that's why Paul, by the way, who's all about the gospel, for those of you like the Duck Dynasty people who like to believe in baptismal regeneration, that think being dunked in water is is salvation, Paul, who's all about saving people and wants to get as many people in Corinth saved, he says in in the beginning of the book, I'm glad I baptized none of you. I'm glad, except for the household of Stephanus, but I'm glad I didn't didn't do that. Why? Because you guys are all arguing about who you're going to align yourself under. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter or Cephas. If baptism was the saving mechanism in water, Paul would be all about that. He'd say, get over the fact that you're aligning yourself with somebody because that's the saving act. Later in the book, he says, I'm your father in the Lord because I brought you to faith in Christ. I got you in this thing called Christianity, speaking in a very human way. So Paul is responsible as the evangelist, making Christians, if you will, in Corinth, but it wasn't through the means of baptizing in water. It was through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which he can't get in a river and make happen. He can't fill up a tank and make it happen. This is something that God does. This is something specifically that the Holy Spirit does. It's a change in placement by the Holy Spirit. Did I mar your view of Duck Dynasty, guys? I'm sorry. Did you not know that? Everybody knew that, right? They believe in baptismal regeneration. At least that's what I've read. And I'm quite, I mean, 95% sure. And if I'm wrong, have one call me and we'll talk it out. Tell my beardless pastor wants to talk to you about baptism. All right. Key text. Let's start with this one, Romans chapter 6. Let's turn to Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. After this great statement, argument in chapter 5 about the grace of God in particular being sufficient and more than sufficient for all of our sin, he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, well, then why not sin more? Well, because that's stupid, verse 2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, the whole point of the cross of Christ was to put to death the problem, to pay the payment for the problem. He was all about, as he puts it in 1 John, or God does, the Spirit does, destroying the works of the devil. And that something, in terms of temptation and compromise and sin and rebellion and transgression, it would be dumb for us. It would be stupid for us to say, well, let's sin more because the grace of God can supply for that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptizoed into Christ? Now, every time you see the word baptizo, you need an object. In this case, we have an object. The object is into Christ Jesus. 
And if I was baptizoed into Christ Jesus, which is weird because when I got saved, I stayed right where I was at and I didn't move. I didn't see Jesus. I repented of my sins. I put my trust in Christ and I stayed right there. But according to the Bible here, the spirit of God took me, whatever it is that represents who I am, my, as I like to say, my resume, my, 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 the knowledge of me in God and put me into Christ. Now, the argument on the table is, should we keep on sinning? And he says, listen, the death of Christ was about destroying all that. And if I got baptized into Christ and all that Christ is, I got baptized into his death, bottom of verse 3. So when he died, paying the penalty for sin, it was as though I were there and I was in that transaction on the cross. It's what makes it efficacious or valuable to me, worth something to me. And I was buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. It was like I got buried as well in the deadness of Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the, through the, by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Now, that's kind of a poetic theological way to say, no, of course you shouldn't sin just because grace can overpower sin and be the payment for sin no matter how bad the sin is. But the point of the baptizo into Christ makes it clear we're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about me having an identification with Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. People say, well, that's the image of baptism. I mean, you can say that if you want. Uh, That's really never explained explicitly in terms of the water ceremony, especially because he was slid into a, a, a crypt, if you will, a tomb. But the point of baptism is my being placed into the act and the benefits of the act. And therefore, just as Christ rose, we should rise to newness of life. No more sin, sinless even though we'll never attain sinlessness. So we can look at other passages we have. If you've been with me, you can look up on Focal Point, plenty of sermons on baptism. But here's the thing. I have a kind of legal transaction in heaven of being placed into Christ and everything that Christ did that benefits me. I'm seen as identified with him. One more that you should look at because it is used with more than one object. Not only is it used in a physical object in terms of water, being placed into water as a ritual or a ceremony, but being placed spiritually into Christ, there's another, another aspect that seems to have both spiritual and physical ramifications. The object of it really can be seen as both, although I think the emphasis is on the spiritual side of it. Let's look at it in 1 Corinthians 12. Context here is the outworking of the spirit in the church, the church body, the ministries. Everybody's got a different role to play. It says in verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, many parts, right? Elbow, arms, all that, knees. They're all members of the body. Though many, they're one body. So it is with Christ. Now, Christ is one body. Now, you got to go a little further and you're thinking about how Paul used that, that, that analogy. He is the head. We are the body, particularly in Ephesians. The idea of the people in the church, it's like we are now in Christ, but this is more than the file cabinets of heaven, more than me being forgiven. Now it's me being identified with the people of God, and the people of God are the people that God loves, and the head is taking care of the body, and the body is the people of God in this case. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized. Now here's a different object, into one body. Now, the spiritual aspect of this is that I am now identified with the people of God in God's mind, in Christ's mind. So when I became a Christian, I not only had my files moved over into Christ and everything that Christ did was now applicable to me. His death was sufficient for me. His life now was sufficient to be credited to my life. 
But I'm also now moved from where I was outside the family of God into the family of God. I'm a part of the people of God, which has very specific ramifications in terms of tangible expressions. And that means I start to go to meetings where the people of God are. I start to talk to other Christians and spend time with other Christians. And in this context, I start to do things that benefit other Christians. Anyway, let's get back to the text. Verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized, placed into one body. Whether we were Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, none of that should divide us in the church. We were all made to drink of one spirit. The spirit of God, when you drink something, it goes into your body. The spirit of God, the spatial analogy, is that he indwelt you. He indwelt you. And when he indwells us... We are now placed into the body of Christ, the people of God, the church, the corporate body of Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now, when we think of baptism, you can think of this in the spiritual realm in terms of me being placed into the benefits of Christ and being placed into the community of believers. Now, if you don't go to church, you're still a part of the body of Christ. You're just a really bad part of the body of Christ a lame part of the body of Christ, an unworking, dead weight part of the body of Christ. But you need to be active in the body of Christ, which is the argument in the book of Hebrews. So when I'm thinking about what, what does that mean, I guess we could, oh, there's timing, obviously. When does this take place? The passage we just read, either in Romans chapter 6 or 1 Corinthians 12 should make this clear. This is a one-time, once-only reality at the point of conversion. When I became a Christian, because when I drank of the Spirit, which is an analogy, the Spirit indwelled my body, invaded my body, that is when I got placed into the body of Christ. When I trusted in Christ, I was baptized into Christ and into his death and the benefits of his death, and I don't get forgiven unless I have the benefits of his death. If I got the benefits of his death and I'm a part of the body of Christ in God's mind, the household of God, that only happens once. happens one time, once only, at conversion. The effects of it. We've got to use the word baptizo, or at least try to translate it here. We, we are placed into two things here, into Christ and his church. That's the baptism of the Spirit. You can make it sound mysterious and weird, and I suppose there's an aspect that's invisible and, and profound and legal and forensic and all of that, but it's very simple. When you were baptized by the Spirit, you were placed into Christ and the benefits of his life and death and resurrection and into his family, into his body, into the church. Okay. E, the phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think what I have planned is an entire night just on that, because that's where we all live. Uh, so we'll talk about this at length. But let me introduce it at least by way of comparison and contrast here. Filling of the Holy Spirit. The meaning, and just suffice it for me to throw this out and prove it to you later. Maybe I'll give a little bit of my rationale when I give you the key text here. Supplied and impacted. Supplied, there's something there we'll we'll unpack at length, and not tonight, and impacted. I don't like the old school way. Maybe you grew up in a church that was well taught, and they talk about control. I don't want to talk about control, and I'll explain my rationale on that later. But I think this is a good terse summary, to be supplied and impacted by the Spirit. Key text, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, don't need to turn there. You probably know it. It starts with a contrast. Do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. 
which by the way, if you're a drinker, which is all the rage now, can't be a good Christian unless you're a drinker, I just suggest you get a breathalyzer. Make sure you have one so you know, that, and so you know when you're impaired because that's the sin, by the way. And if you are a drinker and you decide to drink and you exercise your liberty in that regard, just know the drinks of today are a lot more potent than the drinks of Bible time, which means you're going to get you know, impaired a lot sooner than they did in Bible days when they lingered over their wine all day long. So be sure you have your breathalyzer handy so that you know, and I think the government's pretty good at determining when you might not be able to react well behind the wheel. And by the way, America has one of the most lenient blood alcohol level limits. Go to other countries, it's a lot less. But figure out when you've passed that line of being impaired. The Bible says when you get there, the Bible calls that debauchery and that sin. That's not what I'm here to talk about. I just get mad when people, as one pastor says... All pastors, if they don't drink, need to repent of the sin of not drinking. You can talk to Driscoll about that, but that's what he says. I don't get it. I mean, I do get it, and I think it's ridiculous. Nevertheless, the teetotaler pastor says to you, you don't even know that word, do you? Don't get drunk. Instead, by way of contrast, you need to be filled with the Spirit. Whatever that means, as we'll get into it for a whole night, it is a contrast to, or a parallel to, I mean, it's contrast because one goes to debauchery. The other one is important because it does things like this. It, it, it helps you address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always to every, for everything to God the Father, submitting to one another. So here's this long list that comes after being filled with the Spirit, and it's in contrast to alcohol. See, So whatever we're talking about, it's something that is supplying and impacting your behavior. When Remember we taught not long ago about the, John the Baptist when he was being described to his father, soon-to-be father, Zachariah, and he said, make sure he has no alcoholic beverages his whole life. Don't let him have any. Uh, and then the next line is, he'll be filled with the Spirit. Now, obviously, be filled with the Spirit and not be a teetotaler. I get that. But the point is, when he brought up the fact that because much like the Old Testament vows that you might make to the Lord, which would involve going, being abstinent from, from abstinent. That's not the right word, is it? Oh, yeah, it is. Is that what they do? Going dry. What are we saying? Teetotaler just seems like a stupid word that I brought up in this sermon tonight. It's like Timothy. Timothy refused to drink alcohol. The Old Testaments who took these, these vows. Was that news to you about some of you crinkled your eyebrow at that? Remember when Paul said, you better take some wine for your stomach? Why would he have to tell him to take some wine for his stomach? Because he abstained from wine. I'm not trying to make a case for that, by the way. I'm just telling you. Not an odd thing for pastors. Driscoll should write Timothy and ask him, what's wrong with you? You're not at the bar with us. Different thing. Don't get me... I don't know why I'm so loose tonight. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) Zachariah is being told, your son can't drink any alcohol, but... He'll be filled with the Spirit. The contrast is all I'm telling you, is that you see the contrast of that kind of influence that a chemical can have in your body, just like the indwelling of the Spirit having an influence in that person's life. And in that sense, in, in John's uh, scenario, in a, in a massive way, and he's going to be great, and people are going to rejoice at his birth, and he's going to do great things. And, of course, Jesus said he was the greatest preacher and prophet that was ever born barring him, of course. So we'll talk more about that. But the, the idea of being influenced by the Spirit and giving way to, the, to the, the supply and the impact of the Spirit, we'll get into that at, at length later, another lecture. Timing of this, because it is commanded 
to Christians in Ephesus to do this and the things that go with it, they ebb and flow, if you will, to carry that analogy along. And sometimes we're thankful, sometimes we're not. Sometimes we, we aren't being submissive to each other and Paul has to say you should. Whatever it is in the list of the outcome of being filled with the Spirit, because that's something we see you know, rolling in, in the Bible, it's clear, and plus he's giving this command to Christians, this is not a one-time at-conversion, once-only reality. This is a repeated anytime throughout the Christian life command. Therefore, we need to see the distinction in this one as opposed to the other. If you look at timing, A, B, C, and D are all one-time events. E is an ongoing, repeated anytime throughout the Christian life reality. The effect of this, we're supplied with to twist a little bit here, a new empowerment. God says in the Christian life you can have, because of your relationship with the Spirit, a kind of supply in your life that gives you a kind of empowerment, a boldness, a, 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 an influence, a, a generating kind of motivation to do things that are right. Much more on that later. Filling. Good? That alcohol thing didn't bother you much, did it? I, I, I know, I'm, I, know I, get, I get... People think... Wow, should I go off on this some more? People, you do know I know that it is not sin for you to drink alcohol. You know that, right? And many of you I know do. I'm just saying I don't and don't hassle me for not. And not only that, just know that's been a a pattern many times we find uh, inside and outside of the Scripture and often for good. And I could preach a whole other sermon on some of my rationale for that. But I'm not saying it. I am saying, though, that most people who choose to drink as Christians and exercise their liberty in that regard. We dealt with this a little bit in Romans 14. But the idea of that just needs to be carefully monitored so that you do not become impaired. And I can tell you, being a pastor here on on staff and having done it for decades, when the problems of sin in the Christian life uh, erupt in people's homes, their marriages, their jobs. Nine times out of ten, maybe that's a little extreme, four times out of five, uh, alcohol seems to be in, involved. So be careful with it if you choose to do it. And if you do, uh, just know the alcoholic content of the New Testament wine was a lot different, a lot less. Different story. But I'm not, I'm not here pounding the pulpit. I'm not, I'm not calling for, uh, you know, uh, what they call it, uh, prohibition. I mean, I wouldn't mind it, but that's a difference. So, <laughs> it'd solve a lot of trouble in the counseling office at church. It'd create a lot more problems. Well, whatever. All right, let's move on here. By way of summary, this is not on your worksheet, but I just want to look at what we've talked about. Regeneration, sealing, indwelling, baptism, filling. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Now look at what we've said here. Regeneration makes us new. More on that in a minute. Sealing gives us a new destiny. Indwelling gives us a new presence. Baptism gives us a new position. Filling gives us a new empowerment. And I I borrowed a bit of that. I adapted part of that from my uh, theology professor many, many years ago. But I've always liked that symmetry of newness. All right, let's talk about the first one. We're not going to go through all of these, but we need to deal with the first one, which I think is the major uh, word that we need to work through. Because we need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in this regard. Regeneration. There are barriers to regeneration. The first one is natural. The natural barrier, according to the Bible, to someone being regenerate. Let's start with this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, which in context includes the gospel, the thing that saves us. It's folly to him. He doesn't understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
And unless the spirit is involved, the natural blindness, if you will, of the person can't get it, can't penetrate. There's a barrier, picture a wall. Just being a human being born of Adam and Eve, you got a problem. Barrier number one. Just to continue that with another text, Romans 8, 7 and 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That may sound like a decision, but keep reading. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This truth is so important. The doctrine of depravity, it is so important and so missed. It's why people look at all these nice people in the world and say, well, they can't be rejected by God. God's got to like them because I like them. The problem is in the natural state, a fallen person, which started the argument in chapter 5 of Romans, because of the imputation of sin in their lives and the compounding of sin in their lives, no matter how culturally acceptable it might be, makes them an enemy of God. That mind has a kind of natural hostility to God. Can't submit to God's law, including the most fundamental law of God, which is to trust in Christ, New Testament law. Indeed, it cannot. Those in the flesh can't please God. The natural barrier of your life, don't think you were born a Christian. You weren't. You came out hostile to God. You came out blind to spiritual things. You understood a lot of things and embraced a lot of things before you were ever enabled by God's Spirit accept the things of God because you had a natural barrier. One more here. This one I'd like you to turn to. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And again, this is not a sermon on depravity, but to think about our state before Christ's work applied to us through the Spirit. Without the regenerating work of the Spirit, we got a problem that is so naturally complicating that it is analogized by physical death. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Because of your state and your life, that's who you were. According to the Bible, you were dead to God. God was dead to you. There was no natural peace there. Common grace, get it. Regenerating relationship, not possible. Following the course of this world, because that's what the whole world culture is all about, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, everyone, in the passions of our flesh, whether you're three or 33, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. There was a natural barrier between us and God. We were like the rest of mankind. Every Christian needed the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because we were naturally disconnected from, hostile to the God that needed to save us. Okay, now keep that passage over open and let's jot this down and look at verse 2. We just, I read that quickly. Why do you read that quickly? Because it's my next point. There's another barrier and it's a supernatural barrier. Not only was I dead just simply by being a part of the human race, not only was I dead and by nature a child of wrath because of my activity, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, according to verse 2, I was following, whether I knew it or not, consciously or not, the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? God's arch enemy. He is, as the Bible says, the strong man who binds, you know, the captive in the house, as Jesus put it. The spirit, now this is even more frightening, that is at work in the sons of disobedience, of which you all were. You and I, as non-Christians, I don't care how culturally acceptable your activities were to your parents or your church that you grew up in, you were hostile to God, your heart was hostile to God, you had a natural barrier that was then made even worse because there was a double fence between you and God. 
The reason that the regeneration was needed, the work of the Spirit, is because now Satan was involved in your life, making you even more insulated from the God who needed to save you. Supernatural barrier. I'll give you one more up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even, Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, if they don't get it, you can picture the barrier. That's the, that's the image I'm trying to create. It is veiled to those who are perishing. We can preach it. They don't get it. Why don't they get it? Because there's a barrier. There's a physical, natural barrier, a natural barrier, not physical. In their case, the God of this world, we have already learned there's a natural barrier. Now here's the supernatural barrier. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them like a fence from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Only they could see the value of Christ. Well, they can't because they're dead in their sins. They're naturally opposed and hostile to God. They cannot have an encounter with the living God because the things of God are spiritually appraised and they're natural people. And then Satan has erected another wall around them. Their eyes are veiled, so to speak. Not the eyes of their head, but the eyes of their mind. They don't get it. They don't see the light of the gospel. They can't comprehend it. Not only because of their natural barrier, but the supernatural one. Therefore, Spirit's going to go to work. If anybody's saved in this room, it's because the Spirit of God has to go to work. Letter B, Holy Spirit's work of conviction. It starts with conviction, according to John 16, verses 7 through 11. This is a classic text. We'll camp on this for a little bit. So once you jot that down, turn there or call that up on your electronic device. John 16, 7 through 11. Yeah, I was preaching to hundreds and hundreds of college students last week and turned to this passage and couldn't hear a thing. They were all on their phones and laptops. No rustling of pages. And that's starting to go away in our church too, isn't it? Some techie Orange County people. John 16, 7 through 11. Of course, I'm preaching from a laptop. Yeah. Well. Yeah, yeah. You were about to call me out on that, weren't you, you hypocrite? Not only that, it's a skinny little laptop. That you're on. All right, you got me. I wasn't complaining. I was just observing. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, Jesus says, upper room discourse, talking about the coming of the Spirit. It's an advantage that I go away. Well, how is that? Because if I don't go away, the helper's not going to come because that's the arrangement and the sovereign plan of God. I leave, the parakletos comes. If I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he's got a job to do. These, they're going to be his apostles, his evangelists. He's going to convict the world, the spirit now, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. More on that in a minute. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. Let's talk about the word conviction a little bit. Letter A, the meaning of the word. Elenko, 17 times in the Greek New Testament. It's variously translated. We'll look at some aspects of it here in a second. 57 times in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint. So it's a common, fairly common word. It's proportional, I suppose, to the Old New Testament. You math majors can tell me whether that's exact or not. Here's the various shades of meaning in this. Conviction. Whatever has to happen to get my natural barrier and my supernatural barrier obliterated so I can have a relationship with the living God has to be done by the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit, it begins with this convicting work, and that is to convince me of something. I don't see the light of the gospel, but it starts with me seeing the problem of my own sin. The word is used in the New Testament and the Old Testament Septuagint to convince of someone's fault. You don't see it. It's like being a parent. You realize... You're always trying to get your kids to recognize what they don't seem to see. It's the act of convincing and, and often used that way in the New Testament. Preaching is all about convincing people of faults in part, as Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. To refute, you've got an idea and you're holding to it. And I'm here to refute that. 
That's the spirit of God in the work of your heart. You've got a series of wrong assumptions, and they need to be changed as it relates to yourself, as it relates to God, as it relates to the truth. I just read a lengthy testimony of a Christian, became a Christian recently, late in life, an intellectual you know, person, and just to read the testimony of how God had, you know, God's spirit, to be specific, had convicted this person of all the things that they were thinking and believed and the assumptions of their lives. I just thought, this is, a, this is the work of the Spirit. It's great to read those testimonies. And to expose, even in the picture of the text that we read about the barrier, the blindness of Satan, there's that sense of vision and light and exposure. In this case, as we think about conviction, the first step of the regenerating work of the Spirit, it's to show the problem, to see it, to be intellectually convinced, even emotionally convinced, exposed, refuted. Which, by the way, the Bible is the major tool of the Spirit. It's the book, living active, sharper than a chigit sword. Why? It convinces me of even the motives of my heart because everything is laid out before God with whom we have to do. We have to uh, give an account to him. Naked, it's uh, translated in the ESV. Everything's exposed, naked, laid out before him. And the conviction of the spirit gets me to that place. Elenko. All right. That's the meaning of the word. The types of experiences, just before we look at the aspects or components in this text, you can have the work and conviction of the Holy Spirit as a part of his providential plan, if you will, in people's lives that does not bring them to conversion. In other words, it's precursory work in every Christian's life. Everybody who's a Christian has been convicted by the Spirit, but not everybody who's been convicted by the Spirit is a Christian. And that may be hard for us to sort through, but that's certainly the reality in the Bible. Example, this may be a little bit you know, nebulous, I suppose, for some of you, but read the full context of Acts 24 when Paul is before Felix and Drusilla and they're asking for him. Now you can say, well, weren't they wanting to get a bribe from him? Read it carefully. The text shows us this kind of attraction to a story, a message of the gospel that's condemning them. Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about, now think about this, interaction about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Man, it struck his heart. The translation here in the ESV, he was alarmed. See, there's a lot of preaching that I can do, even in gospel presentations with non-Christians. There's never a state of alarm. It never reaches that point. It's like bullets off Superman. The, the truth of the gospel and sin and conviction and judgment goes every direction. This had really penetrated Felix's heart. He said, go away for the present and never come back. Is that what the next sentence says? No, when I get an opportunity, I'll call you back. There's that experience of conviction. And some of you have had that, you know, go on in your evangelism with neighbors, friends, co-workers, and you've sensed that God is at work. And sometimes it's frustrating for you because you think that's the convicting work of the Spirit. The next thing is regeneration. I mean, yeah, it's precursory work to the package of regeneration, but it doesn't necessarily mean the person is going to become a Christian. But everybody who becomes a Christian goes through this experience. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Now, I know this is an Old Testament example, but it's a good example of the conviction of God that really convinces someone through and through, refutes their assumptions, and changes their mind in terms of their thinking about things, but doesn't lead to a changed life, as we learned about Balaam. Forsaking the right way, speaking of the modern, when I say modern for him, first century false teachers, they've gone astray and they've followed the way of Balaam. This was long ago in the wilderness, wandering, right? I mean, uh, or you remember the story, Balak, the... The king hires Balaam, the prophet for hire. He loved wrong, the gain of wrongdoing, not a good guy. And he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey, who's was not supposed to talk, spoke with a human voice. I mean, it's Mr. Ed, you can see it. There's a dated joke you young people didn't get. Mr. Ed, who's that? Look it up, Google it. 
A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, if you read the story of Balaam back there in Numbers, it's a bit confusing. It's almost schizophrenic. I mean, here he is, and he seems like a good guy in one chapter and a bad guy in the next chapter. He's flip-flopping back and forth. And what we often don't understand, because a couple different scenes go in between, and then finally we see the downfall of the Israelites because Balaam had convinced them through his scheming, the undoing of the people of God by getting them into the, the sexual immorality with the foreign wives. In other words, he's a bad guy. Started as a bad guy, ended as a bad guy, but had lots of conviction along the way from God. God used a donkey to convict him and literally convicted him. That's the conviction of God and his spirit. Didn't lead to any regeneration, uh, certainly not in a New Testament sense, and not even in an Old Testament sense did he find his way into repentance and forgiveness, but was convicted. I just want to make it clear, the work of the spirit of conviction can be the genuine bona fide work of conviction, but not lead to repentance and faith. Obviously, the kind work praying for in the lives of others, and perhaps you're yet to get there, but I hope you will get there as well. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10, it's the kind that leads to salvation. He says this, Paul does about the Thessalonians. We know brothers loved by God. They're brothers, they're loved by God, so they're Christians. That he has chosen you, we know that. How do you know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. There it is. When the gospel was preached, it wasn't just something you understood in your head. It wasn't just something that you listened to. It certainly wasn't something you, you know, like bullets off Superman that was repelled. It was something that had a powerful effect on your life. And what is that described as? Entire conviction. You received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. You were willing to pay the price. You counted the cost. You were ready to do this no matter what it cost you. They themselves, the people that looked on from Macedonia and Achaia, they report what kind of reception we had with you when we preached the gospel to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice that that turning, that change in life, was preceded by the regenerating work of the Spirit that begins with the component. Initial component is the conviction, what he calls here the full conviction. And that's the the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. You want to see supernatural demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God, don't go next door to Benny Hen's place. Stick around here and wait till someone reaches the place of conviction of their sins. And they begin to see things with a kind of exposure in their own lives and a convincing and an overturning of assumptions. They have their ideas completely turned around regarding their own guilt, and they reach out to God in repentance. That's the power of the Spirit. And it comes in full conviction when people recognize the problem and it results in turning to God to serve him. That's the powerful work of the Spirit that we want to see. And it's the kind the Spirit is promised to be engaged in until he comes back, Christ comes back. All right, let's talk about the components, back of the page. We can go through these quickly for the sake of time here. We need to. Components are, in the text, the conviction regarding sin because they don't believe in me. This is more than just the problem of my own behavior. That comes next. But the real problem of not reaching out to the solution regarding sin, regarding righteousness, because I go to the Father. It was really clear when you were in the presence of Christ that you weren't him and you needed to be. There's a lot of that pain that we have sometimes when we don't measure up in the presence of a godly person, or in this case, you spend some time with Christ. You don't have that standard, that canon, that measure of righteousness walking around. Where are you going to get that? The Spirit of God is going to convict people of that regarding judgment. It's not just, man, I don't measure up, that's too bad, on to the next topic. It's there are eternal ramifications. Just like Satan got tossed out of heaven, there's eternal consequences for not reaching out to the solution for our sin regarding judgment. I preached on that before. That that can be looked up. That's not hard to understand. Let's breeze on through that. 
letter C, the preliminary work of the spirit in regeneration, the first aspect, a component of that is conviction. The heart of it is new birth. Now, we turned to this earlier, but it'd be good to keep it in mind or keep it open or have it there in view to remember these aspects of it clearly, and and this I know is debated amongst people with different theological backgrounds, but it should be clear that we don't have a participation in this. We don't, we don't come up with this. We don't, we don't, we're not smart enough to get it. All you have to do is listen to what we've said already. If you're naturally blind, if you're dead in, in your sins, if Satan is blinding your eyes, how do you get out of that? You can't bind the strong man. You can't awake from the dead. You can do nothing but pray, if you, which you won't do anyway because you're dead. But you can hope or someone can pray for you that the regenerating work of the Spirit will change all of that. And in this text, it makes it clear, Titus 3, 4. This is the goodness and loving kindness of God. It's based not on the works that we do, but on his own mercy. This is unmerited, unearned. This is what theologians like to call monergism. This is God working and us passively being the recipient and target of his regenerating work. It's the difference between what we call common grace and what I prayed at the beginning of the night, effectual grace. Effectual grace is that grace that does work. It accomplishes its goal. And the target of that effectual grace is dead. That may be too Calvinistic for some of you, but I can't get around those conclusions by reading the Bible. It's unmerited and unearned. The work of the Spirit, as it's put in John 1, is not by the will of man. You didn't decide to become a Christian one day. It is by the will of God. It is something that God decides. It's something that God chooses. I know the implications of that are hard for us. But that's because we've got ourselves on a pedestal far too high, and God, we want to put him down on a pedestal that we can reach to, unearned, unmerited. Now, let's get into the heart of this a little bit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal, the rebirth, the remaking, I like to call it this. It's, and again, these are words as best I can do to grasp it with avoiding some of the, you know, the, the ditches on the sides that I have fallen into in my theological education. I want to talk about the core self being transformed. I grew up in a tradition, and perhaps you did too, that talked about regeneration being the granting of a new nature. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. What I believe the Bible teaches is a rebirth, a rechanging, a a re... Well, we'll look at it in a second. But let's just call it at this point, the core self is transformed. Does that sound like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that you learned as Boys Brigade or Pioneer Girls or Awana? This is the... Old things are gone. New things come. Why? Because if anyone's in Christ, he is a new. Something changed. He created new life in you. He didn't give you a new nature. He made you new. That's different than what a lot of people have taught as it relates to regeneration. The washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Spirit whom he poured out on us, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Let's go to another passage for this, but let's call it this new direction. And and I'll tell you why after we read the text. Colossians chapter 3. Now, I knew we would be at this particular point in time. Not exactly, but I guessed we would be running behind. So I could give you lots of passages on this. And Paul was the one in the New Testament who liked to expand on the idea of being a new self, a new person. The debates about regeneration, about whether or not I get a new capacity or I get a new nature or whether or not I myself am remade, I think is a debate worth having. And I come down on the side of we don't get a new nature. I'm not someone with two you know, components and expressions like people would like to describe it as I was taught, a white dog and the black dog and one's the good dog and one's the bad dog and whichever one I feed the most is going to direct my life. 
The Bible says that the core of who I am has been remade and redirected. I'm a new creature in Christ. Well, where's the battle then? Paul paints the battle not between two selves, which is really what the new old nature debate is all about, or the paradigm is about, but my debate is really with my flesh, my humanity. I'm encased in fallen humanity with appetites, desires, and all these things that I need to marshal, and I need to subject the members of my flesh to do right. But who I am, my core desires as a Christian have been rewired, remade. That, I think, is helpful in counseling, by the way, for those of you doing partners or helping people who are struggling. If you have a real Christian, you can stop a real Christian even in the midst of their sin, even in the middle of their worst temptation. If you can really sit down and say, quick, what is your core desire? What really do you want to do here? The, the, the battle is real, but it's not between two selves. Right? It's between who I am and what I'm encased in, the appetites of my flesh. I know it's intrinsic. It's such an intrinsic part of who I am. I don't want to make this so dichotomized that my flesh is so, it's like not even me. My flesh is me. It's just not who I am in terms of my core self, if you will. Verse 5, Colossians 3. You've turned there, right? Therefore, put to death whatever is earthly in you. And what's earthly in me is the stuff that's going to pass away. It's the thing I cry out for, I groan for in Romans 8, the redemption of my body. That's the problem. My spirit, if you will, myself has been remade, but I'm going to put to death whatever is earthly in me. And that is desiring things that aren't lawful, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. All that's idolatry. It's the opposite of godliness. On account of these, by the way, God's wrath is coming. In these you too once walked. That's who you were. That's the way you lived. When you were living in them, that was your natural impulse. And that's what you did. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Those are things that your flesh may impulse in its impulse want you to do. Lying to one another. You don't do any of that. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, the core desires of my own self desire the sinking up of my flesh. The only limits on that is conscience and getting caught. Teachers, parents, government. Those are the things that limit it. But myself and my flesh, they're, they're on the same wavelength. Then I get saved. The regenerating work of the Spirit is I've been made new, and I put that off. Now, again, you may say, well, if I put it off, it doesn't sound like God's work. Don't, sometimes we're so technical and so snooty about our theological language, and I get why we are. But you do know in the Bible, Paul, Paul says things like, uh, I'm all things to all men so that I might by all means, do you know the next word? Save some. Does Paul do the saving? No, of course not. And he understands what he means. But he's engaged in it, and he's doing it. He says he's their father in Christ, and he saved them. Well, he didn't save them. I mean, he was just a tool to get them saved. And in this case, we don't put this off, you know, like we just decide to become a Christian one day. We understand the, the doctrine of regeneration, but that's the experience. It's like I'm repenting, I'm turning, I'm saying no to this old life, and seeing that that's already happened in your life. The old self put off, and you've put on the new self, which, of course, is created. God created it. And he says it, which is being renewed in knowledge. Talk about feeding the white dog, black dog. You may say, well, that's not right. But certainly feeding who I really am, myself, my regenerated self, it's renewed in knowledge after the image of its, because it was created. When? When I was born? Mm -mm. When I was reborn, born again. That's the work of regeneration. Put to death whatever's earthly in you, verse 5, all these things. Seeing that, verse 9, you've put off the old self and you put on the new self. Of course, it's an act of God. And it's being renewed, and it's looking more and more like the one who created it. 
The new Mike Favares, created by God, has got a lot of work to do and a lot of battles to fight. But as it's renewed with knowledge, I grow in the grace and knowledge of God. It's looking more like Christ. That's progressive sanctification. I like these words when I talk about regeneration. Rewired, refocused, retuned. My heart as a Christian is rewired, refocused, and retuned. And if your heart doesn't feel that way, you've got to distinguish between is this really your core desires or is this just you're getting beat up pretty bad by the flesh because you live in your flesh. Whatever's earthly in you is really not you. It's just such a component part of you. It's a struggle and it's a tight, intimate struggle. But if you have no sense of that, then maybe you're like I was growing up in the church just trying to conform from the outside in. Real Christianity changes who you are, and it changes you from the inside out. That's regeneration, and it's a pattern. It takes time. I understand it's a a process, a trajectory of growth, but good words for us, I think, are rewired, refocused, retuned, just to give the imagery of what it means, the experience of regeneration. All right. wish I had more time for this, but let's do this quickly, and it's important. And we may have to pick this up more, and you may have questions, and let me know if we don't cover this well enough. We'll just cover it, Mike. Okay, here it is. Letter A. A lot of words here. Ready? Letter A. I want to end with trying to clarify some confusion. All started with the chart, remember? We understand all these things, these actions of the Spirit are distinguishable. There is a confusion regarding the Holy Spirit's baptism and the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And, and that, that confusion that's all over Christianity today is based, number one, letter A, on the confusion in the Bible on transitional timing in the Gospels and Acts. Write that down. We're, we're writing it down. Okay. This, that's, man, that's a key you may thank me for one day because this clarifies a lot. Let me make this clear. And you know this, but it may be an aha moment. The disciples, if Peter got killed in a boating accident in, I don't know, Acts, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew chapter 12, <laughs> would he go to heaven? Would he go to heaven? And by that, I mean, were his sins forgiven? Are you going to see him one day in the new Jerusalem? Sure. Why? Well, because he was saved. What does that mean? He was, in the, he was on the good team. How? By the grace of God. Why? Because he trusted in Christ. Very clear, though, in the New Testament, is it not? Even in the passage we already read in John 14, he wasn't indwelt by the Spirit. He wasn't indwelt by the Spirit. He was a follower of Christ, trusting in Christ, saw his sin for what it was, and convicted by, worked on by, governed by, led by even the Spirit, not in the same way necessarily that we are, but he wasn't indwelt. Why is that important? Because if you look later in the New Testament, you can read absolute statements throughout the New Testament. We already read one tonight, Romans 8 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, doesn't belong to Christ. Context, the indwelling Spirit of God. Romans 5 5. God's love has been poured out in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We get the love of God in our lives when the Spirit of God is poured out in our, in our hearts. In other words, that's the demonstration of it. Well, then I guess God didn't love Peter. Well, he did. But in the Gospels, he wasn't indwelt. He had the love of God. He had the forgiveness of God. He belonged to Christ. He didn't have the Spirit of Christ in him. He didn't have the, the, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit given to him yet. It was always future. Galatians 3, 2. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, hearing with faith. Jesus taught Peter. Peter heard it. He put his faith in what Jesus said. And yet, he didn't receive the Spirit. Not yet, at least. Galatians 4. And I could give you many more, but I'm just giving you a a few. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and we cry out then, Abba, Father. Now, did Jesus call Peter his son? Absolutely. 
Not only that, your friends, your heirs. But he didn't have the spirit in his heart. I just want to, when you think that through, and you say, in the Gospels, the disciples did not have the spirit, you've got to make a distinction here. They were in with God, but the reality of New Testament Christianity was not yet applicable to them because I guess we were in the middle of a rule change here. We were. Some disciples in Acts were not indwelt. What? Some disciples in Acts were not indwelt. Follow me now on this in your minds. Acts chapter 1, just stepping back for a second. The promise was made, still future in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And we know that's more than on you. That's going to be in you. And that's clear as it plays out in chapter 2. And you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That, by the way, if you've ever studied Acts, is the outline of the book of Acts. The gospel going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. You can build an outline on the whole book that way. Chapter 1, verse 8, though, spirit hadn't come upon them. Spirit had not indwelt them. We still have people that are called Jesus' people. We assume they all die, they all go to heaven. They all become, they all are forgiven, no condemnation people. They didn't have the spirit indwelling them. Let's think through this now. Those disciples that got that promise in the next chapter, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they had this miraculous demonstration of that filling, which was they spoke miraculously in other languages, what the word glossa means, other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this new relationship with the Holy Spirit for those disciples in Jerusalem started there in Acts chapter 2. Now we have what seems to be normative in Galatians and Romans and everywhere else in the New Testament. Think this through now. Judea, by the way, I could talk about as well, but for the sake of time, in Judea, they had the men of Judea they were preaching to, and Peter preaches them in chapter 3, and we see them indwelt by the Spirit. Samaria, though, uses the word baptism. Let's look at this now. Acts 8. I need you to turn to this one, please. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Jerusalem, the ones that were promised the Spirit, got the Spirit. They preached to people. They called them men of Judea. They get saved. The Spirit indwells them. The promise of the Spirit fulfilled in their lives. Acts chapter 8, we get to Samaria. In Samaria, verse 14... Well, let's start. I guess they're in Jerusalem still. The the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Now, think about this. The message had gone out, had continued to reverberate. It's going, and they received it. They, They accepted it. They embraced it. And so the apostles sent them Peter and John, the two big guns. Right? All we're missing is James there in the inner circle. We got Peter, the pastor in Jerusalem. We got John, you know, right hand man of Christ. And off they go, the apostles. And they came down, which again is north. If you remember, everything down from Jerusalem is down, whether you're northeast, south, or west. So they're going up north, but they're going down, down the hill, down uh, to Samaria. And they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now tell me, the whole point in the rest of the New Testament, and even in the, in the Gospels, is receiving the word. Remember that, the whole sower thing, receiving the word with a good and sincere heart. That's conversion, is it not? Yeah, but they don't have the Spirit. They have not yet received the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the water now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now think about this. They've got right standing, right hearts, receiving the word, which we said what? Spiritually discerned. You cannot receive. If you're a natural man in a natural, you can't receive it. They've received the gospel. They've trusted. They've responded. But the apostles have to go down to Samaria, up to Samaria, and they lay their hands on them, verse 17, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Let's tie this all together in a second. Ends of the earth. Acts 19. Turn to Acts 19. 
ends of the earth. And this particular passage is involving places like Greece and Turkey, Corinth, Ephesus, verse 1. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. Now, that's an interesting word. It's not tossed around loosely in the book of Acts. It might be a little more loosely used in the Gospels, but found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, think about that. That's an odd question, but it's warranted because we've already found people that have received the word and not the Spirit. And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. What? Okay, that's a problem. But it seems like you've responded to the message. He calls them disciples. They've responded to the light that they've had regarding the gospel. And he said, well, then into what were you baptized? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. He told you to repent. And he was telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. Well, we did believe. That's how this started in verse 2. That is Jesus, verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized, not in water here, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking. Here comes another external demonstration in tongues, languages, and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So 12 guys here beyond the borders, if you will, of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, now at the ends of the earth, are having the Holy Spirit come on them. The pattern here is, if you watch it, both in Judea, which we didn't look at in Acts 3, and Samaria, Acts 8, and the ends of the earth, Acts 19, is the apostles going and sanctioning the expansion of the church through the evident signs that came through the indwelling of the Spirit, which started in terms of pattern in Acts chapter 2. They were believing, they were trusting, they were disciples, and they did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay. That is not normative because, remember the list? If you don't have the Spirit, Paul's writing to the Romans, you're not a child of God. He writes to the churches of Galatia, you get the Spirit when you believe in the gospel. Here are people believing and not getting the Spirit. Why did God do that? This is an exception. You cannot add this up if you understand baptism and indwelling as we've understood it and looked at the passages, and that was just a a reference of a few. We could look at many more. This is not normal. Here's the big problem. The confusion today is people read these passages and they think it's normative. They think it's normal. They think this is the way it works in the New Testament. They see a chart like this that we started with and they don't believe it. Oh, that's not right. Because you know what? My mama became a Christian at such and such a date. And then six years later, she got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And she looks at the book of Acts and says, I have an experience just like they had in, wouldn't say this probably, Samaria or beyond the borders of Samaria and Judea in Asia Minor, in the Macedonian Roman colonies. How did that work? Well, this was unique. Why? Because, as I've often taught, the New Testament apostles were the sanctioned emissaries of Christ who were giving new revelation regarding the truth of the expansion of the gospel in the church without a New Testament. There was no New Testament. They were New Testament preachers without a New Testament. They needed some kind of, which they had, some kind of credentials to show, which they showed through what? Well, the Bible calls them the signs of the apostles, Hebrews 2, 1 Corinthians 12. These things were done to prove who they were, the sanctioned representatives of Christ. Therefore, as the message preceded the apostles, they had people becoming forgiven disciples, 
before the sanctioning of the apostles, laid their hands on them, authorized, if you will, that this was legit, and the Spirit then comes on these people, indwells them, places them into the body of Christ. This is a unique exception. There's no way around. If you, you're, you're in a crash course, a collision course with logic and, and, and hermeneutics if you don't see this as an exception. The rest of the Bible doesn't add up. We have to see this as an exception, which to me makes complete sense based on what's going on in the book of Acts. Oh, no time. Letter B. There's an experiential confusion. Not only a biblical confusion, because someone can say, I became a Christian and got the Spirit later. I got baptized in the Spirit later. They see that in the Bible, and they say, I did, I, I, that was my experience. That's a unique experience never to be repeated in the Bible. It only happened in the book of Acts. Letter B. There's an experiential confusion based on an unbiblical gospel and false assurances. That plays out today in the 21st century. What do I mean? People that claim that they got baptized in the Spirit or got indwelt by the Spirit, or as they often say, I got the Spirit, they have something happening in their lives. I'm not talking about the wild fringe element. I'm talking about people that have an encounter with God. They'll call it a second blessing when in reality, because of a bad gospel or a false assurance or some kind of walk an aisle, toss a pine cone in the fire, raise your hand, they thought they got saved. It wasn't a second blessing. It was a first conversion. A lot of second blessing stories are first conversion stories. Or in our circles, perhaps we call them rededications. And we think maybe at that point when God really got a hold of their lives, we say must be a second tier of Christianity where the spirit must have entered them or the spirit must have indwelt them or the spirit must have baptized them. No, no, no. Real conversion. As I like to put it in the pulpit, varsity Christianity is often equated with uh, you know, as a second blessing, is actually, in reality, real Christianity. Second encounters are the true encounters. We could go on, you get the point. When the gospel is anemic, how many times people in our church go through partners and say, I never even heard the word repentance until I read this chapter. I never even heard anybody talk about what it means to repent. And yet the Bible says repeatedly, unless you repent, you're going to perish. Jesus came preaching the gospel. Mark 1.15, he was saying, repent. I mean, the message of the gospel hinges on, is set on repentance and faith. And you have people after years in church who've never even heard that. And I'm saying a lot of those people have testimonies about Christianity who at some point without good teaching hit a level of real conversion and call it a second reality, a second blessing, an encounter with the Spirit. When in reality, it is an encounter with the Spirit. It just happens to be your first encounter with the Spirit. Confusion based on failure to distinguish the indwelling of the Spirit from filling with the Spirit. We've got no time for this, but I'll say it quickly. Filling and indwelling are similar analogies, are they not? Filling, filling, and indwelling, taking up space inside. These are analogies, as I like to always remind you. And because they're similar, we confuse them. When empowerment is experienced in filling, which is the reality we'll look at for a whole night, what does that mean to be filled by the Spirit? When that empowerment is encountered, they think, I got indwelt. That may not happen in a good teaching church, but in some churches they think the Spirit entered my life. And really what has happened is they've had some empowerment in their Christian life through the filling of the Spirit, which is different. People like to say, I got the Spirit, when actually they were empowered for some kind of service. I've read that in so many people's testimonies all the time. Matter of fact, in church history, you'll see this confusion a lot. Even in good, solid people, they just have their theology a little bit twisted because their terminology gets confused. Confused. Confusion based on failure to distinguish baptism with, with filling. Evidence of filling. Now think this through. The evidence of filling, which we'll look at for a whole night, the empowerment, the fruitfulness, when you do something and, and, and there is this, this clear work of God in your life. 
They say, well, there was that clear evidence in the book of Acts when they were baptized with the Spirit as a second encounter, which they've missed the fact that that's a unique experience, and they say, well, I've been baptized with the Spirit. Tori, the founder of Biola, used to talk that way. D.L. Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute, used to talk that way. They talked about the filling of the Spirit in terms of baptism. They were wrong in doing that. That was not, that's not right. They confuse those terms. And when you do confuse those terms, you start to speak a lot like the second blessing people uh, who have this view of the Spirit getting you into the next tier of, of Christianity. Remember the distinctions and actions of the Holy Spirit. we got a chart for you on that. Recognize God's perfect separation of the time in the book of Acts. We have no time with that. We've already talked about it. Sorry. Let me pray for you. You want that one up? I'll, uh, let me pray. And you can keep one eye open and write that down for those of you that want to. That's fine. God, thanks for our study. Thanks for our time. I know this is a lot of material, but I pray it would, uh, would hit the mark, do some good in our hearts and lives just to clarify. As we started out there in 1 Corinthians 13, we know that uh, we see even at our best here through a glass dimly. But one day we look forward to the clarity that even will supersede any of the best study we might do here on earth. But for now, God, let us sharpen our focus as best we can. Thanks for this crowd. Give them understanding, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.